Imagine this, back in 1960s Ireland, when most of us saw an adventure as going to the nearest beach, this fearless young woman in Waterford, what she was dreaming of a much bigger challenge. She set off on a bicycle, little or no money, and a pistol. But she did bring with her her own unique ambition. She wanted to explore new horizons and new cultures and a fearless streak that has been her constant companion. Now, on that first journey... She paddled from Ireland to India. She went through previous unknown, uncharted territories like Afghanistan, Pakistan. She even cycled over the Khyber Pass to go into India. And it sparked a kind of a spirit of discovery that has brought her through, well, the arid, deserted regions of Ethiopia, for one, with just a mule for company. She's nerves of steel and, by the way, she has needed it in her life. Let me allow her to tell you her story because this week in the Mindfeed Chair we have the wonderful, amazing Dervla Murphy. Dervla, I'm honoured to have you on the programme. But first of all, can I take you back to that fearless young woman when most of us were just dreaming of getting on a plane to go to far-flung places, just dreaming of it. You were actually doing it. Yes, I suppose so. True enough. In 1963, when I cycled to India, I didn't meet any Westerners between Istanbul and Peshawar. And it was within the next five years or so that the hippie trail started to Kathmandu, following much the same route. So, um, yes, I suppose it's true that... that, um, Did you always have the bug for wanting to travel? Just born with it. And you were always... uh, the, The bicycle was always your companion? Oh, yes, those days, yes. Even at that young age, Dara, you, you were absolutely fearless. Like, when I look at everything that you've done, I think shades of Kate Aidy there about you, you know, completely <laughs> fearless. Well, I mean, Kate goes for, forth into really dangerous parts of the world, battle scenes, and... Uh, I mean, I was never fearless in that sense. I was never involved in, thank goodness, in... in um, Armed conflict, let's say. But you and saw. You, I, I wouldn't have any nerve for it. But you, you saw your fair share of, um, you know, I suppose difficulties, and especially on that cycle trip you just spoke about to India. You, I think you brought a pistol with you, didn't you? That's right. I was told to take one for my, but I sold it in Afghanistan. I became an arms <laughs> trader, and thought I would be actually all things considered safer without. It. I want to know something, though. Where did you get a pistol from? I bought it in Dublin. Really? I mean, there was no, there was absolutely no problem. <laughs> Took it home to Lismore, went to the local guard station and got my licence for it. And that was that. And were you a good shot? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness it didn't mean anything. But, but, you know, when I look at that journey and the, and the book that you subsequently published, I mean, that was incredible for a young woman to take well, it felt, to me personally, I mean, it felt very exciting. And this was something I had wanted to do for many years when I finally did it. Did you face danger, I suppose? You know, I'm, I'm being lighthearted about the fact that you took a pistol with you, but it was unusual. Like nowadays, women head off to India all the time. But, you know, in those days, and also you were on a bicycle. Well, of course, in those days, I mean, it was incomparably safe for that it would be now. You know, occasionally I hear from young people who say they want to do the same thing. And I actually advise them against it because the scene has changed so tragically from, I mean, you know, you wouldn't go safely cycling now through 
Afghanistan and Pakistan. And mm. I, I read somewhere that you were uh, that the worst injury you had was from a rifle butt on 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 a bus. That's <laughs> right, accidentally. <laughs> you cracked your ribs. Oh <laughs> well, yes, but I mean, my worst injury of all, really, most painful was tripping over the cat outside the kitchen door, <laughs> completely shattering my left arm. Oh, gosh. And Devla, while you were travelling through from Ireland all the way to India, at what point did you realise you probably might be thinking of writing a book? Oh, well, I'd always wanted to write. I mean, I never wanted to do anything else. So there was no question of that. Um, I mean, I kept kept copies of all the letters I wrote to friends at home. And those letters formed the... The first book, Full Tilt. You have, you know, you've you've been a great traveller and you've gone on all of these great adventures. Did you find it difficult to actually sit down and write for that period of time? Or was it just a necessary, you know, sort of catharsisism after going on the journey? No, no. I mean, I'd been trying to be a writer all my life, you know. I mean, that was my my natural way of being, as you might say. Yeah. Yeah. So there was no, no particular... I mean, what is difficult, you know, when you're travelling, if you're very tired in the evening keeping your notes? Now, this is different from the from mm. writing letters home. Mm. Um, you know, keeping the notes that you're going to need just yeah. so that you remember the particular details. And it's really very necessary to keep the notes every day, every evening. And that is difficult when you're very tired. Devlin, when you came back from India, was it something that just came to you, the next expedition? Oh, well, I'd, you know, when I finished the full tail trip, you see, I'd gone directly from New Delhi to work with the Tibetan refugees, which had then, you know, they had recently come out of Tibet a few years previously, and they were in a very bad way in various refugee camps in the foothills of the Himalayas and I went and worked in the big children's camp in Dharamsala where His Holiness the Dalai Lama lived and still lives, his main base. Um, Did you meet him? So, yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, he was a very young man then. But it must have been something to meet him and to get to know him and did you work alongside his sister? Well, oh I did, yes. Mm. She wasn't very good news. We okay. had quite a few confrontations. Her brother, however, that must have been something to meet him, the Dalai Lama. Oh, yes. But I mean, I just met him a few times. I, mean, I didn't get... Well, he couldn't speak any English in those days to begin mm-hmm. with. He was only 27 at the time and very recently out of Tibet. And then after that, I went back to work with the Tibetans in, in Nepal. That was the third book. And then after that, went to... Ethiopia. Yeah, tell me about Ethiopia because you had always wanted to go to Africa. Yes. Uh, well, Ethiopia was that was a wonderful journey. You know, for about three months I didn't see a road. So I had a pack mule with all I needed, you know, for food and camping and all the rest of it, water. And did you travel alone or did you have people with you? No, no. I always travel alone. I wouldn't want, apart from the few journeys I did with my daughter. I wouldn't travel with anybody else. And were there things that that you feared at the time? I'm trying to get a sense of, uh, Dervla, I know when you look back on things, sometimes they seem like something that you did 
you know, and that it came quite naturally to you. But but when you were out there, I'm just reimagining you there with your packed mule walking through parts of Africa that most people hadn't ever gone to. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't ever expect trouble, as it were. You know, I just have an optimistic nature. <laughs> I mean, I'm, when when frightening things happen, then I'm frightened. But I, I'm never frightened in advance. <laughs> it's a good way to be, actually. It's quite fearless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think probably fearless is a good word. I mean, it's the correct word because it's not it's not courageous. I mean, being courageous is overcoming fear. Being fearless is just what it says. And Devlin, did you ever come across anything in all of those travels? You know, people listening to this and these incredible trips you took and all of them, they would see them as risks. I know you don't see them yourself as risks. Um, did that trust ever falter? Did did you ever get into difficulty? I suppose the most dangerous was an encounter in with bandits called Shifta in Ethiopia. When they, you know, they robbed me and they thought... They debated whether they would, you know, murder me and throw me in Lake Town or not. And that was, you know, pretty nasty five minutes or so while they were making their minds up. But that really was the most dangerous. It was very little danger in, in, you know, 52 years or whatever it is now, travelling in fairly remote places. So uh, as you're doing all these travels... um and I kind of know myself, maybe the travel writers often suffer from this. What, what was happening in the personal life? You must have had to give up quite a bit in order to be away for all that period of time. Well, not really, because, um, I mean, I, you, you know, as soon as she was old enough, oh, my daughter Rachel, I took her with me to Cork, for instance, when she was five, and to Baltistan when she was six. And on a very long trek through the Andes when she was nine. And then we went to Madagascar when she was 14 and Cameroon when she was 18. Well, go back first because um, I just wanted to ask you about Rachel. And obviously when when Rachel was born, you weren't travelling at that time. What oh, was, no. What was happening in your life at that time? <clears throat> no, no, I decided that, you know, having a baby would not be... Um, you know, it wouldn't be possible to travel in the way I like to travel until she was about five. Right. So I had, you know, decided to stay within Europe. I mean, I took her on little journeys around Europe when she was tiny. But until she was five, we didn't leave Europe. And at the time you were a single mom. Oh, yes. Always a single mom. Always a single mom. Did it impact on her schooling or was it something that you felt that, you know, actually all those experiences were important for her for life? No, absolutely. It doesn't seem to have done her schooling any harm. <laughs> <laughs> what was different then about uh, taking Rachel with you? Well, I suppose, I mean, it was, it was interesting, you know, um, when she was a child, it, well, it just makes travelling much easier, really. You know, you're 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 um, made even more welcome in various out of the way spots. But then it was really interesting when she was eighteen, an adult, and we went to Cameroon for a wonderful trek with a pack pony. Um, and I realised then that it doesn't really work. 
to to adults, I mean, from my point of view, because the local people, when they see two adults together, strangers traveling together, um, it just changes the whole chemistry in a very distinct way. And if you're traveling alone or with a child, you're obviously, you know, completely trusting of the people amongst whom you're traveling. And for you, it must have been a big issue of trust that you were taking your child with you now to these far-flung corners yes. of the earth. Mm-hmm. And never that and trust. that was obviously appreciated by the local people wherever we were. Daryl, at some point in your life, and you, you probably will tell me that you always were this way, but you appeared to become more political. Oh, of course, much more. And, and when did that happen? I think it happened um, on the way back from Peru. When, you know, by extraordinary coincidence, we happened to be passing the Three Mile Island nuclear plant when it was, you know, in a pretty dangerous state. And I I, I mean, I'd always been interested and quite passionately anti-nuclear power. And I actually postponed writing the Peru book because so many people encouraged me to write a book against the nuclear power idea, which I did. But that actually was the turning point. After that, then, I was more and more involved in the the political problems or social problems of the various places I travelled through. Northern Ireland in particular? And Northern Ireland, of course, yes. Yeah. And and your views at that time, like, I mean, I do sometimes think that, that people who live in the Republic of Ireland don't often venture up into Northern Ireland and express their views as freely as you have. No, and I remember being so disappointed, you know, when I came back at intervals, because in all I spent about 18 months up there, but coming back at intervals too, there's more. And, you know, I remember feeling quite concerned by the fact that so few people in the Republic seem to be interested in what was going in, going on in the North, as those were something so nasty and threatening they preferred to pretend it weren't, wasn't there. Mm. But I remember one, when, when I um, was working on the South African book, I remember flying back directly from Johannesburg to Belfast. And I remember then, you know, being sort of overcome with a feeling of exasperation at the whole population of Northern Ireland and the, you know, the fuss that they had made about all their problems when I had been soaked for about over a year, they're very much more real, as it seemed to me, than problems of South Africa. And that was, of course, just an emotional reaction. I'm not mm. suggesting that the problems in Northern Ireland, though so different, weren't equally real for the people who were going through with it. But I'll always remember that feeling of impatience, you know, why don't they get their act together and count their blessings instead of making so much trouble about what seemed then relatively little. As you say, you were leaving Joburg and witnessing apartheid. Oh, yes. And now when you look at the political landscape, so Northern Ireland, for instance, I mean, does that give you hope? 
Oh, of course. I mean, Northern Ireland has to give you hope. And the issues that are still on your agenda? <laughs> <laughs> they sound like there's lots of them. <laughs> well, at the moment, I'm about halfway through a book on the Palestinians' problems. And I've spent a bit of time out there. And, you know, I feel that it's a very strange situation because, in a way, the Palestinians, from a, a physical point of view, let's say, um, are so much less deprived than literally millions of other people who are, as we realise, starving and displaced and all the rest of it. But, on the other hand, the Palestinians, I think, appeal to our sense of justice in in the context of our, actually, when I say our, I mean the West. In a sense, if we put pressure on the Israeli government, well, they just couldn't go on behaving, misbehaving as they do. Do you know how many miles you have actually cycled in your lifetime to date? Not the slightest <laughs> idea. <laughs> and if somebody out there is listening to you and they're thinking of going on a great adventure, what advice would you give them? Well, it would be quite difficult, actually. I mean, I often think that about my granddaughters, you know, how restricted their opportunities would be to travel in the way I did. I mean, you know, there are lots of other ways of doing it. But there's so many parts of the world now that have been spoiled by our Western type of development, which is often to the detriment of the local people, though it increases our wealth. So, I'd, yes. I Find mean, somewhere I'd, unspoiled. Yeah. Well, let's very, hope. Very few places left, really. That was Dervla Murphy, travel writer and adventurer. Thank you so much for taking the Mindfeed chair and sharing all those fascinating stories from around the world.